This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. How does change happen? What role do unions play in creating decent quality lives for its members? When is more militant action needed? These questions are asked by all unions. So in our quest to explore education unions in more depth, I want to explore how transport unions begin to answer these questions. In many ways, the struggles facing teacher unions worldwide are similar to those facing the transport sector. It isn't just about wages. It's been about health and safety. It's been about protecting lives. It's about making a contribution to society. And that's where there is a correlation between all the global union federations, whichever sector they represent, and EI, and their objective. My guest today is Stephen Cotton, the General Secretary of the International Transport Workers Federation. The ITF, as it's known, is composed of 677 national trade unions and represents over 19 million workers in 149 countries. It represents seafaring, ports, roads, rail, tourism, and the aviation sectors. In our conversation, Stephen shares his history in trade unionism and reflects on the process of making change. He also talks about the climate crisis as one of the biggest issues facing unions today. Steve Cotton, welcome to Fresh Ed. Pleasure to be here. So can you take me back to when you first joined a union? Okay, so my story is a little bit different in the sense that, and I kind of joked yesterday at the EI Congress that education wasn't my primary. I, I left school at 15 and um, I wasn't particularly well educated and that's mostly because I didn't take the opportunities that the education system in the UK gave me. So I had to go off to work pretty early and I had quite a few pretty poor jobs. Such as? So I was a messenger and then I worked in an administration team in a law firm and kind of worked out that I wasn't going to get very far unless I didn't do some more education. So I had to do night school to do some more, to get myself up to, it was O-levels in those days. Yeah, right. Today it's GCSEs. And um, so I had to do night school to get better qualifications. Then I ended up working in a law firm in the litigation department. And there I started to do kind of what they call court work. So you do sort of interlocutory hearings and you try and fix dates for, you know, it was in the High Court in London. And then um, I suppose in the sort of lucky kind of break opportunity or a reflection that that firm asked me to go to Singapore when I was 20 for a month on a big arbitration, construction arbitration case. And uh, luckily enough, I did a good job at that. And then when I came back, had my 21st birthday, it was quite something for, 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 for London. <laughs> we won't talk about yeah, that. Yeah, a boy from London when I was 20 in, uh, in Singapore. And, um, and then when I came back, they said, we want you to come into the litigation department. And then I started to work with this kind of what I thought was a really interesting organisation, the International Transport Workers Federation. The way they asked me to do some, uh, well, the first case was they asked me to go back into files and review what we have a flag of convenience campaign, which is a campaign against abuse of seafarers on ships. And we've been running that campaign for 50 years and we've collected some money for quite a lot of seafarers. And in those days, the seafarers, in sort of, so I'm talking, give myself away here, early 90s. So we were going back even 10 and 15 years and the seafarers that we collected money for, and I won't take too long, Taiwanese, Koreans, 
those Filipino steel. And we had money that we had to pay out. So part of my thing was to produce, could we find these seafarers? Could we pay the money we collected for them on a global movement for their abuse and their positions and their jobs? And we paid out millions of dollars. And you had was, to find them. Had, well, we had, we had, when we took cases, they were on a ship. So they were yeah. on a ship, someone takes an action, you get a crew list, they sign things. But then in those days, if you gave the money back, the ship owner would then just take the money off them because they were on the ship. And you, so you had to wait till they went home and then if the process wasn't followed up, so we had money on account with names and then we cross-reached. Then we had process servers in Taiwan, in Philippines, oh in gosh. Korea, finding people because we had a responsibility to pay the money out. And we managed to do a, a real good job at it. And I kind of fell in love with this organisation because I saw it a bit like, a, you know, I was born in South London and I wasn't from a union family. So it was like, oh my God, like, look, this, this is what unions do. It was amazing. And it was really like, it was for, defending you know, Global South people that were disadvantaged in an economic situation. So then I, you know, then in the 1993, so that was 91 to 93, uh, the new General Secretary came in, David Cockroft, and uh, I said, well, is there, you know, would there be a job if I came and joined? By this time I was not a qualified lawyer, I was on the route to doing some of that stuff in night school studying law. So that's kind of my connection to yeah. education. So wait, so you're 15 years old, you yeah. drop out of school, you end up doing all these different end jobs here and there. You end up in a law firm working on paying out seafarers all over the world. And you get in touch basically with the ITF. Yeah. And that is your... That's the beginning to my trade union. And then I've become oh, wow. a member. And you're taking night school here to become a lawyer. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. Some some trajectory. Yeah, so, well, and also, I mean, imagine you join an international trade union secretariat without any background, so they're like, it's been a bit of a struggle to win over, first to win over people, oh, right. to pr prove your credentials. So how did you do that? How did you show that you were a real trade unionist? Sort of? Well, I think, I think um, the reality is, on some levels, you, you try to look at what are the solutions to the problems. So um, in that capacity, um, I've had what was the head of agreements unit, assistant secretary to what we call the special seafarers department, which was the role for delivering the flag of convenience campaign. Then I became the maritime coordinator, which oversaw seafarers, dockers, and all that campaign. And then I became acting general secretary and then general secretary. So that's- Wow, wow. So you, and was that a quick no, that rise? No, that goes from 1993 to 2013. Wow, okay, so you, it was 20, year 20 years and you were sort of building uh, up. Every, every, pretty much every job. And I think... Yeah. Um, That's a good way to get your credentials. Well, yeah, it's kind of transport unions quite tough. Mm -hmm. And uh, the world of transport is becoming more tough. The global supply chain, the just-in-time model. Um, and we have a history of being quite militant. And I think it was not proving you're militant, but it was proving that we're smart and mm. understanding the changing. So over that yeah. 20 years, you imagine we've seen challenge on the numbers of unions, we've seen challenge to secondary boycott action, we've seen challenge on voting and percentages and how do you get representation, all of these things. And throughout that, I've managed to stay extremely close to the national unions. Mm. So like, like to me, the global union federations belong to their national unions. Yes, we have enormous privilege and responsibility, or privilege and along with that comes responsibility, to have a vision about what the labour movement looks like as we face the future of work and the challenges right. you really want to discuss. But the reality yeah. is, each and every time, we might not have known we were taking 
big steps to the future, but actually if you reflect on it, things have changed quite a lot. And yeah. it's kind of like, how do you stay relevant? Yeah. How do you make sure you're educated on what's happening on the other side of the table? Right. Or, which I think is more pertinent today, it used to be the counterpart that you bargain with. Today, it's an ideological position, and this is where I think it comes back to the educators. It's like there's a trend not to invest in the future and in people. So there's a disinvestment in teachers or lecturers or educators. In transport, they want it just to be the cheapest, cheapest movement of a container right. per mile. And that means... That's the metric. Yeah, irresponsible of how, fact, how many people you impact on and that consequence, right, just right. drive the cost down. So our challenge in both educators and, and transport is like, how do we push, how do we push the dimension back? How do we make transport more expensive so that we can distribute better, better salaries and more than security and stability along right. the line? And it's the same conversation in a different way for educators. The reality is, how do we make sure that society values them? And right. how do we invest in them in a way that instead of demeaning them and attacking pensions and social benefits that they spent tens of years fighting for, because you know, you're not gonna get super, super rich in those jobs, you're giving to society right. in a different way, they should be respected. Well, get me going. Yeah, but yeah. the point is, it's absolutely critical <laughs> yeah. that the you know, workers, better educated workers or uneducated workers who want to be educated, should be respected for their contribution and not devalued into a metric value of X. So yeah. that's the challenge for all of us, I think. So, so in this, you know, in your experience here, 20, 29, was it? Yeah. 29 yeah, yeah, years yeah. of experience in, in the um, ITF and all these different positions, how does this secretariat navigate making change through more militant action versus more sort of solidarity campaigns or perhaps less militant actions? Like, because you were saying the, the ITF or at least those national coalitions were a bit more militant than say education unions. Yeah. So how do you, how do you balance think, this when it comes to well, making I think, change? I think we shouldn't lose the militancy. And mm. you know, we saw it recently with the attack of the International Labour Organization, the right to strike. And again, we didn't really react right. strong enough yeah. because you know, it's a human right to withdraw your labour make yeah. no mistake about that right and and even though the future of work and all these new gadgets and apps and all these issues actually they're just the front end for selling our labor at a price so for me i think you need the militancy which means you do need education you do need mm -hmm. to respect the history of where we come from the history about why people collectively come together it isn't just about wages it's been about health and safety it's been about protecting lives it's about making a contribution to society and that's where there is a correlation between all the global union federations whichever sector they represent and ei and their objective in fact there's actually a reliance on ei as the educators of the world to help us to be fit for purpose for the next mm -hmm. round of challenges so for me i think you need you need to keep the militancy but you also need to pick your fights. I think there's a key issue here about, we've challenged our organisation quite aggressively over the last, um, Paddy Crumlin's our president, he's Australian from the Maritime Union of Australia. He wanted us to be a more campaign orientated organisation, which means in some ways you have to change the dynamics of your committee orientation of some of your team members, because you know, not everyone's a campaigner, right? right we might right. be the perfect professional at running a political committee, but if tomorrow we're all gonna work out how are we gonna seize back the power, yeah. you know, the reality is you need a different set of skills. So that's been part of our challenge about how do we identify what and whom and we should target. 
and sometimes you get a bit lucky and sometimes not. But you have to be honest enough to go, that worked and that didn't work. So, so when did it work? When, when, when was an example so, of So, well, I think for us, it's a little bit like we, in, in the transportation, we have built, so we, in that period of time, we managed to, we've got the only global union federation direct collective bargaining agreement for seafarers. So mm. we built what's called the International Bargaining Forum. And that was, in a way, trading some of our ability to take individual action against some ship owners by working with them as a coalition and then setting a global salary for seafarers. So that was a little bit like trading. We'll give you some more industrial peace, but you all have to come to the table and you have to bring all your ships with you and you have to make sure that you treat mm. Filipino, Russian, Ukrainian, Indian, whichever nationality you employ through our unions, of course, because there are members through the affiliation of the national union. So that's how we were able to say, right, and that's given us, that's now 20 years, it's been going, started in 98 as one form in 2002. So we're, you know, um, 17 years in the full package. And that was a way of actually reconfiguring and, and actually producing a more stable environment for both the employers and the workers. So I think you can look at it in a different way now and we see transport is always at the cutting edge of change and we see challenges to many of our different bits of the supply chain, dockers and automation, changing way we check onto planes and all this stuff. And you need to be able to have the conversation, but you also need to win over the people. So yeah, I think yeah. for me, I, don't, I think the fundamentals about running a good national union and how they fit, feed into the international are as critical today as they've ever been. You have to understand your values and you have to understand what you're trying to achieve. Mm. Picking soft targets if you're doing transition is also part of the methodology because we all need to win, right? Yeah. We can't yeah. make a massive change and we want to pull down Mount Everest in the day one. It's not yeah. going to work, right? Yeah. You've got to build the capacity, learn the methodology, upgrade your skills, all education issues as far as I'm concerned, whether it, were, whether it be for unions or for people mm. as a whole. And then you deliver that model you test yourselves, you, you have to be critical, but you also have to be transparent about critical. Right, right. And sometimes that's a challenge for unions about yeah. how transparent we can be when we say, well, we have to win this. It's not about the press release, right? It's about delivering the outcome and it's about which, whether we took corners at high speed and we wobbled a bit on the way around or whether we dropped a gear and went more steady because you need to change your strategy for different moments. Right. So I think for all of us, it's that conversation about picking a target that means something to your membership. Now that's kind of difficult when you've got a global mm -hmm, membership because mm -hmm. they have you know, diverse issues and same for education and we've got heat transport sections. But you need to show the industry that we've got the power and authority to make change. Mm -hmm. I said yesterday, and, and I believe it wholeheartedly, we're working on building our membership, which is helping national unions grow, not ITF grow, it's national unions grow campaigning and that does mean in some cases signing up individuals i'm here in thailand and we've got two projects in airports and uh, the metro and we're building either in improving the unions we've got or building new unions for those sectors but ultimately in the end we do need to apply the supply on policy and right. we need to compete and that's where i think perhaps there's, there's more correlation between us and the educators when it comes to engaging the ilo um, and then issues of global policy, it's really difficult right, issues right. like cl climate change or climate management. You know, transport's kind of one of the big polluters. Yeah. And also there's competition about who's a more efficient mode of transport. Right. And it's a difficult conversation for so us. So how do you have. do it? I mean, because you look at the news and every Friday now, 
there are student protests around the world, all protesting against the climate crisis. We're not even calling it climate change anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the climate crisis, it's climate apartheid, you know, I mean, this is, these are serious issues that young people face. So being in the transportation unions, what, you know, what's the conversation happening? Because as you said, it, transportation is so, a huge polluter. So I think, again, this is politically difficult. Yeah, but, of course. Let's talk about it. Because yeah, um, <laughs> that's, we can't be transparent and accountable if we don't have those conversations. Yeah. So up until now, we, we were able to secure internally a position on urban transport. Mm. So there's this sort of ILO, World Bank research that says by 2050, 70% of the world will live in a city. So we've been able to work with some really good people. Alana Dave's leading our public transport campaign where we've got a climate change position and we're working with the L40 cities, which is the mayors that are trying to change their own cities. There's now over 80 big, big, big cities. And we're working with them on, on what does transport look like in those environments. Yeah. So that was okay. Now we had a, but it's not enough because we have the International Maritime Organization has made emissions legislation for shipping which is about capping and reducing emissions. Got some, there's some political points on that. And we've also got research that says aviation industry is going to grow by another 50%. And of course, can't deny that mm. there's a big issue there. And they've got, so without getting too heavy into it, because both of those sectors have really implicit policies and reactions and strategies, we're, we're bringing it back to our executive board actually this October in Montreal. And we're going to say, look, we cannot be a relevant organisation to young people if we do not tighten up our policy position on this. And we can't, we, yes, of course, there's consequences yeah. if you're a coal worker or an oil worker. We have oil and gas people on our ships. Yeah. So there's a really direct human, there's a short, medium, long-term position yeah. on this. But we have to be able to respond to the dynamics of society. And I think this is what the EI Congress is celebrating and why mm. I was pleased to get the opportunity to speak is because we have to have answers for these big issues mm. and yes they're going to be difficult to debate internally mm. but they are they have to be debated otherwise we will not be relevant and that's yeah. the critical point and if, if you really believe that unions are part of the, the democratic pillar of society which i wholeheartedly do then we have to take mm. these difficult questions you know i was elected in 2014 and you know i explained my history and now we're talking about the future of work, probably the most difficult issue working men and women have faced for a hundred years. And we're supposed to have all the answers. I, I mean, and, and what, for me, what's, there's sort of a paradox here where one of the solutions to the climate crisis is certainly a sort of a degrowth model of the economy yeah. where, where people consume less. But if we're consuming less, I would imagine we're traveling less, we're shipping fewer goods, which would have a direct effect on the number of workers that have sustainable livelihoods through yeah. the union, right? So there's sort of this yep. paradox that I would imagine is unbelievably difficult to bridge or find a, you know, well, some I, sort of common ground here. I think, I think in, you know, I was giving a previous interview, I think this question of policy and government's policy is perhaps the missing element. Seeing a massive political movement about who's more powerful than anybody else and just to be clear, I'm talking about America, Russia and, and, and China. Yeah. And the ITF has relationships in all of those places with working men and women, although not by membership in China. And there's a lot of posturing, but it doesn't seem to be an awful lot of thinking <laughs> about what the hell we're going to do about the displaced people that future of work can bring 
a, a, an effective response to the climate challenges. And we need some clever people. We're back to the value of educators. Clever people don't just arrive. They get nurtured and they get brought along and then they get educated and they get further educated. And I anticipate for the future of work, we're all going to end up in more and more education to remain valid for the future. And it's kind of critical that we need some policy development on this because mm -hmm. You know, we've looked at the global minimum wage and the distribution, but there's some massive flaws in the business model, kind of which is what we started this conversation mm. about, because if the objective is not to pay tax, how the hell are we going to build a society that looks after those people that are either unable to re-educate themselves in a changing world or either unemployable if all the jobs change to a high technical specification, yeah. we still have to have a society. And I think, again, we're right back to the fundamental principle, what's a union, what's our values, and our values is to shape society. Yes, it takes the form of collective bargaining, but also, I think, probably now more than ever, policy development, and that's where the cooperation between the global union federations and the cooperation with the ITUC is absolutely critical because we need to stretch our minds about what should be the policy developments and how do we respond. Well, Stephen Cotton, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. It really was a pleasure of talking today. Thank you very much. Thanks for the opportunity. Stephen Cotton is the General Secretary of the International Transport Workers Federation. Today's episode was put together in collaboration with Education International. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please consider rating us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. Fatih Akhtas is our researcher, and Ing Jung Cho is our content developer. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.